0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we're shining the spotlight on ETFs with Vivian Sue, Ritu Kumra, and Megan Chen. Our panel of ETF experts speak with host Pat Balland for a discussion that was recorded in front of a live audience at our December Focus 2022 event. Vivian is Director of Product Innovation responsible for developing Fidelity Canada ETFs, alternative and ESG product strategy. Ritu, analyst and portfolio manager, manages components of Fidelity Canadian Disciplined Equity Fund, as well as Fidelity Advantage Ether ETF and Advantage Bitcoin ETF. Megan, digital asset strategist, is responsible for research and development of our alternative products. Fidelity has been rounding out its product shelf with innovative new strategies, including our all-in-one ETFs and digital assets. Today, the panel provides an overview of these products, reflects on the past year, and shares what they're expecting from the ETF industry in 2023. Today's podcast was recorded on December 9th, 2022, and as previously noted, this was recorded during a live event, and you'll hear some references to slides that were displayed to the room. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, and do not reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates.
1: Thank you for joining Vivian, Egan, me too. Great to have you guys here because I love ETFs. Talk to me first about each of your roles.
2: Sure. Uh, Maybe I could kick us off. The Director of Product Innovation. uh, So that covers ETFs, alternatives, as well as ESG products. Um, I've been with Fidelity for many years. Um, I've been doing product development for the past 10, uh, ranging from retail and institutional markets over the span of that. Uh, Period. And so I was part of the team that helped launch the uh, first dividend factor ETFs in Canada um, in 2018. So then, since then, we've been expanding our lineup to various different asset classes, geography, themes. Um, So I know that we'll be covering a lot of that today. And um, the latest that we've launched uh, this year so far that you can see on screen would be the conservative and equity all-in-one portfolios, as well as more digital asset strategies being the Advantage, Ether, and Total Metaverse.
1: Okay. Uh, can we leave that up? Because uh, it'll come back to you. I want to discuss that in f- further. But Megan, go ahead.
3: Sure. So I started off my career as a private equity analyst at Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, or CPPIB. Uh, CPPIB has in-house private markets investment teams. Um, I was on the private equity team, so I conducted investment due diligence for direct private equity transactions. After CVP, I moved to England for a few years where I worked at BlackRock um, in the alternatives group. And my role at BlackRock focused on portfolio construction for institutional investors that were looking to add an alternative investments allocation to their portfolio. So I helped with uh, asset allocation design and implementation strategy design across private equity, private debt, real estate, infrastructure, um, as well as structured credit. When I joined Fidelity, given my background in alternative investments, I focused on developing alternative investment products. So I helped, launched, uh, I helped launch our uh, liquid alternatives product lineup. And when crypto came along, it fell under the alternatives umbrella. So I worked on our digital assets product lineup, including our crypto ETFs and developed expertise in this area as
4: well.
1: Okay, Richard.
4: Um, My name is Ritu Komra. I'm an analyst and portfolio manager on the investment team. Um, I've been with Fidelity for about 11 years now. Um, Over that time, I've covered a variety of sectors and uh, most recently covering uh, financials, so specifically insurance and real estate. Um, I'm also involved in the crypto um, lineup here, so the the Advantage Bitcoin ETF as well as the Ether ETF. Um, My interest in crypto largely stems from just the cross-section of, of what we're seeing in financial services versus technology and um, and just the financial innovation that's that's happening right now.
1: Okay. I'm going to come back to you, Vivian, because I, I want you to explain what we're looking at here. And what a lot of people don't realize, an ETF is, as an exchange-traded fund, it's a fund. It's a type of mutual fund.
2: Right. Correct. And so Reedy is just a um Vehicle choice. I know that mutual fund has been well established in the Canadian market uh, for decades, and ETF is a relatively newcomer, um, but still been around for over 20 years in in Canada. And so, what uh, we've done is taking what, you know, makes Fidelity different, makes Fidelity special and wanted to launch something that can complement our existing mutual fund business. And then so that's what you see in front of you with the various different factors, ESG strategies, balanced and,
1: and digital assets. Did you start off with factors first? I'll point out 1989 was the first ETF in Canada was the first place to have an TSX 60, yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we started with the dividend factor. Um, First, I think Canadian investors um, have a preference for income-generating investments. So that was the first one that we went with. Um, And then subsequently, we launched the different factors that you see in front of you, low-vol, quality, uh, value momentum, um, we have balanced strategies as well. Uh, sustainable world with, is an ESG strategy that we launched back in 2019. Um, we have fixed income. So, yesterday, Jeff Moore and Mike Plage were on stage. So, they managed two of the ETFs for us as well. And of course, uh, Ritu manages the, um, the Bitcoin and Ether. ETS. So,
1: these are not necessarily chronological. Digital assets, obviously, is the most is the latest, but sustainable is probably the one before that.
2: Yes, that's right. So yeah, so it's not by sequence. Uh, we're just grouping it by different themes. And then so that's what we've seen in the Canadian market. They're using, um, we see that investors are using strategies as these to complement what they already have. And so we want to, to consider and consistently look at what we currently offer in the mutual fund business, what makes sense, what uh, makes sense to add to the ETF lineup um, to support our existing book of business.
1: Okay, so now give me a review of what happened in the ETF world in this past year because we know what's happening in the stock world.
2: Yeah, and, and I would say um, obviously the general sentiment has basically uh, been, been the same for the ETF industry as well. But ETF uh, in Canada have been quite resilient um, I would say we're still in net positive territory um, currently assets are probably at around $318 billion or so um, relative to mutual fund business which is probably $1.8 trillion. so still some ways to grow. For ETFs, um, net flow so far year-to-day as of November is $28 billion. Um, so it's quite a, an impressive number so far. Um, obviously nothing compares to the last two years. The last two years were record breaking years for the ETF industry, um, but still in net positive territory. Um, we're probably on par to match uh, results from 2019, uh, which if anyone can still remember what life was like like pre-COVID everything is looking good for the ETF industry we're seeing a lot of activities people are using the ETFs quite tactically um,
1: and the investors are quick to respond were there factors that were more prevalent at different times through the course of the year?
2: Yeah, uh, same sort of uh, themes from last year as well. We really have seen factors switch from, you know, the very cyclical, like the value dividend, you know, early part of the year. And then now um, over the summer and fall months, when uh, volatility started to pick up, quality, low vol, um, these sort of defensive factors started to pick up again. So we've seen a lot of switches back and forth. Um, And I would say because of the overall volatility so far this year, uh, we've seen a lot of money go into cash ETS as well as investors look for safety.
1: Uh, So fixed income, though, Jeff and uh, Mike from yesterday, is that starting to move now?
2: It is starting to move now, actually. So uh, fixed income is having quite a great year if you add up the, the cash allocation, uh, the cash ETFs as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, we are starting to see uh, people go back to investment grade fixed income. Um, and I, I sort of going back to my point earlier, ETF investors are quick to respond. Um, so as we're seeing uh, yields at such high levels these days, um, interest are starting to pick up again for fixed income um, as there's more total return opportunities on the horizon.
1: You know, fixed income, obviously, we met Jeff and Mike, and we got a sense of what they're doing in um, ETF world. But how do you come up with the factors? How do you define your factors compared to other people that do the same thing?
2: Right. That's a great question. Um, So we work with our quantitative investment team, and this team has been working with our fundamental portfolio managers and analysts for decades, basically sort of being in the background, supporting their research, uh, you know, using certain uh, numerical metrics to uh, narrow down the investment universe Um, and over time this became a business on its own Um, so then we work with you know the the value managers like Joel Tillen has and figuring out what is the right metric to look for in a value factor for example Um, so all of the factors are built with you know the fidelity deep understanding of fundamental um, and looking at you know narrowing down the universe of stocks, that makes sense to fit into the various factors. And so I would say that over time, we've seen factors investing does outperform broad markets, and we're able to bring that to the Canadian market. Uh, for the past four years.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I'm looking at that uh, chart still, and there's 10 different areas, if you will, of ETFs that you are involved in. What are you most excited in as you finish off 22 and move into 23? Where do you see the greatest opportunity, I guess?
2: Well, fixed income um, definitely yeah. is number one. Um, and the other, I would say, is multi-asset. Okay. Uh, multi-asset ETFs in Canada, Um, Is only about 5% of the overall ETF business. But if you think about the mutual fund side, it's 40%. Canadians love balanced funds. And so I think there's a lot of room to grow for a balanced ETF. Um, I think people are looking for... Um, more cost-effective investment solutions, acting as the core component. And because of how we built the strategies, we've been able to outperform passive competitors as well. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, balanced funds is definitely something that we're um, watching out for. And then I think going back to factor rotation, um, because the markets are moving so fast, um, we are uh, we actually have a white paper that um, we the ETF strategist published uh, not too long ago talking about pairing factors together. Uh, so we're hoping that, you know, this could give people some uh, uh, more trade ideas and trying to, I guess, stabilize the investor outcome overall and trying to, uh, instead of trying to chase factors.
1: When you say pairing, you mean you'll put a momentum with quality and come up with a separate product again?
2: No, so not a separate product, but I think in today's sort of inflationary low growth environment, what we're pitching is a value and quality. Factor pairing together, Um, so that has worked uh, really well in historical backtest, generating uh, alpha uh, two thirds of the the time. So it has a good batting average. Instead of trying to chase, you know, what is the hot factor right now, um, we're we're trying to promote pairings of different factors at different points in time.
1: Okay, and I do want to come back to that balanced approach. But before we do, at breakfast this morning, uh, one of the gentlemen was sitting there. uh, that I was eating with and said, hey, listen, what are we going to talk about as far as digital assets? And we'll explore that. Talk to me about digital assets. That's Bitcoin, that kind of stuff.
3: Sure. So I think in terms of what we've been hearing from advisors, it's been fairly wide ranging. Some advisors uh, certainly seem more curious about the space than others. I think something worth noting is that one in five Canadians have owned or currently own crypto, according to a recent survey by the OSC. So as advisors, you may get questions from clients about digital assets. So it might be helpful to uh, learn more about this topic. Topic. Now, this is a complex topic, and there's um, many new concepts and terminology, such as DeFi, NFTs, uh, consensus mechanisms, smart contracts, and so on. And given the complexity of this topic, in past due diligence, Ritu and I um, have focused on providing advisors with just a high-level sense of what the key potential advantages and the key risks are from an investment standpoint. Point. But the um, but to give the full technical background that would be required to more comfortably understand uh, what lies behind what we talk about is uh, beyond the scope of our brief uh, sessions, of course. And this is why I like to take the opportunity to uh, direct you to some resources uh, on crypto that we have at Fidelity Investments Canada. So we have various crypto resources available either on our website or uh, available through our sales team. For example, I've written white papers on Bitcoin and Ethereum outlining how they work, the value proposition, the risks, uh, key elements of their ecosystem, and so on. I also write a quarterly blockchain newsletter in which I distill and comment on the key developments in this space every quarter. Me too and I have appeared on various uh, advisor and investor webcasts as well in the past and um, will likely continue to do so going forward. Um, I'm also happy to have meetings uh, to answer any of your specific questions. All in all, I think um, this is an area of growing interest for investors um, and clients. And Fidelity Investments Canada has resources to help you dig deeper.
1: One in five Canadians has or has had a digital asset. Do they break down by demographics, age, for instance?
3: It's mostly skewed towards the younger um, segment, yeah, under 35.
1: Okay, so it's, an, it's a growing area. Okay, let's move on. Let's go back, actually, to uh, what you talked about in terms of balanced portfolios, because you came up with an all-in-one suite, and I'd like you to break it down a little bit. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. And and so really um, balanced funds because we're seeing more growth opportunities and we have seen actually some competitors come to market, take significant market share. And we know Fidelity could do better. And so when we came up with the concept for all in ones, we wanted to use everything that's uniquely Fidelity. Um, so we have uh, four portfolios that you see on the left-hand side of the slide, uh, ranging from conservative, which is basically a 40-60 portfolio, and it gets progressively more um, equities over time. And then so you can see that uh, we launched the balance and growth, so the middle two in uh, early 2021. Uh, we added conservative and equity earlier this year. And if you think about the underlying components, I think that's uh, really what makes fidelity different, makes fidelity special. Um, starting with equities, so we we talked about factor investing quite a lot already. So we mix the four factors together: so low vol, quality, value, momentum, uh, equally. So um, we know that individually these factors outperform over time, and so by mixing the four together, we're trying to provide a more consistent outcome. For For investors, Um, it's basically focusing on the uh, long-term compounding effect of factor investing. And on the fixed income side, we're um, adding up systematic and active um, ETFs. So Global Core Plus is the one that Jeff and Mike manages for us. We also have domestic um, systematic Canadian bond allocation. So both of these strategies uh, target to outperform their respective uh, domestic and and global um, uh, aggregate markets and then a very small sliver of crypto, specifically Bitcoin. Between 1% to 3%, um, that has potential for more alpha generation. So overall, um, really the composition of the underlying funds are all trying to generate uh, better more consistent alpha for the investor. We don't charge an asset Allocation fee on top of that, which is very different from uh, a lot of our competitors out there that's doing ETF wrap programs. Um, and I think over uh, the the proof is in the pudding. Really, like if you look at our performance um, over the past year, we've been able to outperform two to three percent. Um, versus the passive competitors out there. So that's why we're, we're
1: seeing more and more interest in these portfolios. Who, who makes the call on assets? So if you've got just focusing on the green, for instance, the factor investing, who makes the call on the asset allocation internally, if you will, in each of those um all-in-one solutions so that's part of the
2: product development process Um, so we basically work with um, all the product analysts together with our senior executive team and figuring out what is the right composition so We equally weighted the four factors. We're not trying to make a call of what's gonna outperform when. And uh, because of the individual um, uh, value adds that each of these factors are bringing, by mixing the four together, you're getting a more consistent um, performance over time. And then we have uh, the regionals or the allocation as well, US uh, being the the bigger portion and then combined with Canada and
1: EFI. Okay, but there's a nice little blue area there, Ritu. How do digital assets fit into a portfolio?
4: Um that's actually uh, what Vivian just said is a perfect segue. And so, um, so we've talked about Bitcoin as being an emerging store of value, um, as being a hedge against the debasement of currency. Um, so when you look at the past, um, historically speaking, over the long term, um, what we've seen is Bitcoin is actually very uncorrelated with other asset classes, whether it's stocks, bonds, commodities, gold. And so um, that correlation has actually hovered between uh, negative 0.2 to positive 0.2, but it's actually really just hovered in and around zero. So, as a result, it's been a great candidate for portfolio diversification. Um, We have talked about uh, adding a 1% to 3% slice, um, similar to what was just laid out here, Um, and that's for the purpose of improving risk-adjusted returns. When you think about Ether and where Ether fits in, um, Ether is actually very high, highly correlated to Bitcoin, given it is um, it's in the crypto ecosystem as well. Um, higher beta, high, like further out on the risk spectrum, but it does complement Bitcoin very well, just given that it it, uh, it has different use cases and different utility. So actually, Megan's done some very good work where um, she's taken a look at a traditional 60-40 portfolio um, that's rebalanced quarterly and compared it against one with a crypto slice. And so um, what, what she found is the fact that um, when you look at the 60-40 portfolio and you look at the risk-adjusted returns as measured by a sharp ratio, um, the sharp ratio ends up being 0.46. And this is, again, rebalanced quarterly um, over, over a six-year period. Um, then you add in a two percent crypto slice which is within that one to three percent range that we talked about if you add in a two percent slice of bitcoin that risk adjusted returns with a sharp ratio then improves to 0.67 um if you take that two percent and rebalanced it and added uh ether on a market cap weighted basis it further improves the risk adjusted returns to 0.71 and so um i think the um the point is, is that, you know, a little can go a long way. And um, but when you think about what's been happening in the last couple of years, um, that correlation that we have historically seen as being just uncorrelated has broken down. And so since monetary policy has really dominated the narrative, we have seen correlation across asset classes, not only crypto, but it's basically converged to one. And that's particularly um, it's of it's particularly impo- particular importance this year where we've actually seen stocks and bonds correlated and crypto is is in that category as well. So the question at this point is what happens as we go forward? Does it decouple again from a correlation standpoint or do we remain correlated? Um, There's puts and takes for both. I think um, time will tell, but I think in order to actually invest um, in, in crypto, I think there needs to be an underlying belief in the technology and the underlying tech blockchain technology. There has to be a belief in the use cases of Bitcoin, which is um, a hedge against the debasement of currency, um, a, an emerging store of value, and then also a belief in Ether in terms of um, its use cases in decentralized finance and NFTs and gaming.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about what's happened to Bitcoin in particular within, in context of the last what, three or four months. Uh, Megan, FTX, tell me what happened and what's happening in the Bitcoin world now.
3: Sure, so FTX is a cryptocurrency exchange. Um, now it has a sister company called Alameda Research, which is a quant crypto trading firm. Long story short, about a month ago, Uh, It was reported that Alameda Research held a large portion of its assets in a token that was issued by FTX. And it appeared that they were holding these tokens at inflated valuations. Now, this revelation raised concerns about the degree of connection between FTX and Alameda, and also raised concerns about the financial soundness of these companies. So what followed was a sell-off of FTX's token uh, mass withdrawals from FTX's uh, platform, which then shortly thereafter led to FTX filing for bankruptcy on November the 11th. So that's the high-level background. Now, FTX is currently being uh, investigated by various authorities, but uh, it may take a, a long while for the full details behind its insolvency to um, emerge. Uh, now, FTX, uh, I think we we can draw certain parallels with uh, famous collapses in the past from what we can glean so far. So if we look at Enron, for example, as was the case with Enron, FTX appears to have had poor corporate governance. It appears to have had poor oversight, poor management practices. If we look at Lehman Brothers, as was the case with Lehman Brothers, uh, what precipitated FTX's bankruptcy uh, was a significant devaluation of assets on its balance sheet, um, as well as uh, a a lot of clients exiting. Now, Lehman, of course, was a bank. So what happened with Lehman Brothers was a bank run. FTX uh, is not a bank. So I guess we could call it a a run on the exchange, if you will. Uh, But I think the very important distinction to make here is uh, that centralized companies like FTX that offer crypto services are different from the underlying blockchain technology, the the decentralized blockchain networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can think of FTX as being an intersection point between uh, companies like FTX, as being intersection points between the traditional world and the crypto world. So they uh, act as bridges, they sit in the middle. And collapses of companies like FTX does not (coughs) call into question the security the functionality or uh, indeed the value proposition of decentralized blockchain networks like Bitcoin or Ethereum. That being said, uh, FTX, companies like FTX currently do play quite an important role in the crypto ecosystem in that they facilitate investor and uh, user access, and uh, they act as on and off ramps between uh, fiat and cryptocurrency. Certainly uh, it's collapsed, had a major negative impact on crypto markets, and it's certainly shaken investor confidence in the sector. Which is ironic, because uh, the philosophy of blockchain is to create decentralized systems that are free of reliance um, from centralized intermediaries. But because the space is still so nascent and still so emerging, that narrative is still building. And right now, there does exist various points of centralization, for example, companies uh, like FTX. But I I think the takeaway here on the silver lining is that this is a nascent industry, and uh, I think the recent collapses of FTX, BlockFi, Celsius, and Voyager, uh, which are other crypto companies that have filed for bankruptcy this year, recent developments uh, may actually promote better practices going forward better transparency, increased regulatory scrutiny that may eventually uh, foster greater stability in the sector and therefore um, foster more adoption going forward.
1: Yeah. And if you have any questions, get them in now because I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, First question is, when FTX goes away, what happens to the Bitcoin? Does it disappear? So.
3: That's uh, that's the important distinction to make. Is that uh, FTX is so Bitcoin is a decentralized blockchain network, and that's very different from centralized companies like FTX that sit on top and offer cryptocurrency services. So the answer to what happens to Bitcoin fundamentally if FTX goes away is uh, nothing really. It doesn't uh, doesn't impact the fundamentals of how the Bitcoin network works or its value proposition.
1: And- And then the next question naturally is how does Fidelity do it differently or, or do they?
4: Um, actually, let me to uh, talk about. Okay, this. go ahead. Yeah, so I think that's a really important question, especially given all the news on FTX. And so, um, Fidelity is um, is attempting to make uh, to make uh, crypto more accessible to to investors, and that's what we're doing with the with the crypto ETFs. We're very fortunate here in Canada to be able to um, to be able to offer spot ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think that it's really important to understand just our history that we have with crypto, as well as the rigorous risk controls that we have um, in place. And so um, if we think about the history, we first started the crypto journey back in 2014 with the Fidelity Center of Applied Technology when research and development really started. Um, It led to the launch of Fidelity Digital Assets in 2018, where Uh, the vision was to have an institutional-grade platform for trading and storage solutions. Um, For for our products specifically, um, we're using Fidelity Clearing Canada, which is the first regulated custodian in Canada uh, for digital assets, and our sub-custodian is Fidelity Digital Assets. And within Fidelity Digital Assets, there are very rigorous risk controls in place, whether it's operational, physical, or cyber. I think of the three, the most important would be the cyber, and um, the fact that we have less than two percent of assets in hot wallets, everything else is either in cold wallets, uh, deep, uh, deep, sorry, uh, cold storage, deep cold storage or is actually frozen. And so um, as a result, that that less than two percent is mainly used for liquidity. Um, and um, I think just I think behind the Fidelity name, we obviously have a very deep history. Um, we are not permitted to rehypothecate or pledge any client assets for the purpose of our own business and, and all of this does have regulatory oversight so they're they're huge it's a huge difference uh between what we're doing versus what we've seen on page one of the newspaper
1: what do you do what does fidelity do for security and all those storage systems whether cold storage in particular i'm thinking of but all the storage systems wallets and so on what is the security pro- procedure you know?
4: There's, oh my goodness. Okay. So I can get into, um, just kind of the operational and the physical of what the physical aspects that I didn't talk about earlier. So, um, physically we have, um, we have military style bunkers geographically dispersed across the, across the globe. Um, very rigorous entry protocols, 24 seven on site monitoring. Um, Vivian likes to, to describe it as like this top gun style, um, um like mission impossible
2: one when. Tom Cruise trying to be, yeah, (laughs) yeah,
4: yeah. um and then just from a operational standpoint um the opportunity for there to be an internal bad actor is uh is is very low because um, there's no one given employee that actually executes any given task and so um and so these are all just important controls and the, the the security is just like the the security is just endless and but these are examples of important controls that we have in place to uh to manage risk
1: <laughs> uh we've getting some questions in from the app. Will the ETF portfolio start to include Ether and Metaverse? And would this reduce the Bitcoin exposure? Wow. So first, let's break that down a little bit. What's Metaverse? Even I don't know what that is.
3: Sure. Um, I think kick it off. Uh, so the Metaverse is, uh, you, there's no official definition, but you can think of it as a network of shared 3D virtual worlds um, that people can uh, go into the metaverse, be represented by digital avatars, see and interact with one another in, uh, in a virtual environment. Oh,
1: so, like, like what Facebook is doing, that kind of thing. Right, okay, that's right. Gotcha.
3: And we currently, that's in an ETF.
1: That's different. We
3: currently already have, uh, there currently exists uh, various virtual world slash metaverse-like platforms, um, Meta. Has one called Horizon Worlds. We also have uh, things like Fortnite um, and Roblox. So these are other examples. Um, but the metaverse is, uh, I guess the future idea of what the metaverse could be is instead of maybe fragmented individual virtual world platforms, is that we see these virtual worlds become increasingly integrated with one another and also uh, potentially have much more advanced capabilities. So right now, technologically speaking, what these virtual worlds platforms can do right now is quite limited. There's a limited amount of people that you could see and interact with uh, at the same time, for example. And so So it's hard to say what the metaverse will eventually look like, but if some of you have seen the movie Ready Player One, that is one potential, I guess, end state of what the metaverse could look like, where it's it's a fully integrated sort of parallel virtual universe that we could all all go into, go to work, go to school, um, go shopping, socialize with one another um, on a very, very massive scale.
1: Well, no way to go to the office. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so then the rest of the question is, will the ETF portfolios start to include Ether? And will that reduce Bitcoin exposure?
2: What I would say about that is uh, we could uh, and we're always thinking about, you know, what other exposures we want to add to the on-one portfolios. Um, and as, as uh, Ritu just mentioned, right now, I would say uh, Bitcoin and Ether are uh, very highly correlated. Ether tends to be even higher beta than Bitcoin right now. So we're waiting to see how these two um, tokens sort of uh, develop over time. It's still a nascent industry, it's still new. Um, the narrative um, of these tokens are still changing. Um, so as of right now, we have the one to three percent in Bitcoin. Not going to add Ether or a Metaverse yet, but you know, that could be in future enhancements.
1: Under review. Um, another question from the app, a common concern is the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. Wow, this is going to get complicated. Uh, can you address the ESG implications of crypto? So I, <clears throat> I'll, I'll paraphrase this and uh, mining involves a lot of electricity, long and short. Mm-hmm. So OK, now let's answer the question.
3: Sure. Um, so I, I can take it off. Um, so. Bitcoin mining, another word for Bitcoin mining, is called proof of work. I just want to give a little bit of background as to why the Bitcoin network needs to consume so much electricity. Um, So basically, a blockchain network is a decentralized network of computers. And because there's no central point of coordination, we need a way for this decentralized network to agree with one another on what the blockchain looks like. And so that's where uh, methods like proof of work slash Bitcoin mining comes in. It's really just a method for the Bitcoin network to agree with one another on what the blockchain looks like. Now, Bitcoin mining does consume a lot of energy in practice, um, but to put things into perspective, uh, according to the Bitcoin mining council, Bitcoin mining currently consumes only about 0.2% of world energy production, and uh, because about 60% of Bitcoin mining is estimated to come from renewable um, and sustainable sources of power, it only accounts for about uh, 0.1% of global carbon emissions. Um, And the other point is that not all blockchain networks consume as much energy as the bitcoin network first of all the bitcoin network is very uh, large and secondly proof of work which uh bitcoin mining uh, is energy intensive but that is not the only way for a blockchain network to agree with one another on uh, the blockchain's contents there's another method it's called proof of stake and proof of stake is actually much more uh, esg friendly compared to proof of work And actually, some of you may have seen in the headlines a couple of uh, months ago, uh, Ethereum actually moved from the proof-of-work method to the proof-of-stake method. Um, This was called the merge, so if you've seen the word merge in the headlines, that's what it was referring to. And Ethereum moved to uh, this proof-of-stake method primarily because it's estimated to consume uh, 99.9% less energy than proof-of-work. So not all blockchains are.
4: As intense energetically, I think uh, the only thing I would add to, to what Megan said is I think it's important to think about uh, the energy usage relative to the utility. And so, if you believe in in the Bitcoin use cases, um, it, you know you'd have to compare like does does it make sense to consume this energy relative to the utility of Bitcoin? You can make the same analogy with like you know a washing machine or a car as well. Hmm.
1: Can somebody who has a lot of energy take over the market?
3: So, that is uh, more relevant to proof of work. So, proof of work uh, aims to ensure that the more computing power, the more energy you contribute to the network, the more influence you have over the network. So, again, this is a decentralized network. We, we need a way to make sure that whoever has the most power over the network are the people who have actually invested the most resources. In proof of work, that's a physical resource, so actual computing power. In of stake, that's a financial resource. So yes, if someone manages to buy up, somehow, more than half of all the computing power that's currently plugged into the Bitcoin network, they can effectively um, conduct what's called a double spending attack and effectively a hack. (laughs) The Bitcoin network. If such an event happens, and it's never happened in the Bitcoin network's history since its launch in 2009, it would certainly be a big blow to the Bitcoin network. But I think the idea is that because the total amount, and this actually goes back to why Bitcoin mining needs to be so energy intensive, the more power, the more collective computing power exists on the Bitcoin network the more expensive it would be for a bad actor to try and buy up half of that power. And currently, we know that the total computing power on the Bitcoin network is absolutely immense. It's more than the top 500 supercomputers in the world combined. So it'd be very expensive indeed for a bad actor to try and buy up half that uh, power.
1: At uh, breakfast, uh, somebody also asked me, could there be a digital fiat currency, like the US dollar, becoming a digital asset? Who who wants to tackle that?
3: So uh, this is called a central bank digital currency. It's a digital currency that would be issued by a central bank uh, like the Federal Reserve. Uh, I believe more than 90% of countries right now are in some stage of exploring uh, potentially launching a central bank digital currency. Some countries are more advanced than others. China, for example, has, is pretty advanced, uh, relatively speaking. They've already launched their uh, digital yuan, as it's called. Um, I think what 's very important to uh, it 's very important to tell the difference between central bank digital currencies on one end and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and ether on the other. so the whole philosophy of blockchain networks like Bitcoin and ethereum are to create decentralized systems. uh, Systems that do not rely on powerful central entities. And CBDCs are on the other far end, right? They are completely centralized. They're completely uh, controlled and issued by governments and central banks. So there's absolutely no competition between CBDCs and Bitcoin and Ether philosophically. They do not aim to try and do the same thing. I think going forward, um, instead of seeing one replace the other, it's going to be more of a coexistence. I think we're going to see a coexistence of centralized currency, centralized digital currencies, uh, as well as decentralized uh, digital currencies like Bitcoin and Ether. And the reason is because both ends have their advantages. Like central bank digital currencies have potential advantages. It can include, uh, it can improve financial inclusion. It can improve uh, transparency, and efficiency of cross border payments, and so on and so forth. Um, But on the other hand, one concern that people have about the launch of a central bank digital currency is that it can increase the power uh, and control of governments and central banks over their citizens. And so this actually further reinforces the argument for the existence of decentralized systems, alternative systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So it's almost like they support one another in a way. Um, And I think they will coexist.
1: In the beginning, uh, the knock against Bitcoin was that it was anonymous and used by crime. Is that still the case? Is it still anonymous or how much transparency is built into Bitcoin itself?
3: Um, so, in fact, it's uh, it's pseudonymous, uh, not anonymous, in the sense that uh, transactions are tied to a name. It's just not your, it's not your real name, right? It's just like when you go online and- I'm, yeah. right. yeah. I'm Jim. Right. Yeah, I'm Jim. Right. So uh, although transactions are pseudonymous, um, they are all incredibly transparent. So this makes it quite easy to actually identify the addresses that are associated with criminal activity. So that's one thing that actually makes it so that it, it makes it harder than you might think to commit crime on blockchains is this transparency. If someone hacks a blockchain ex- uh, a cryptocurrency exchange, it's it's quite obvious and quite clear to see. the. You can trace the flow of funds. You can see which addresses are actually associated with uh, these criminal activities. So that's one thing. It's easier to identify you know, addresses that are associated with crime. And once these addresses are identified, there are actually ways to sanction um, their activities. So uh, one, one way is through major sources of liquidity, like centralized cryptocurrency exchanges. So, for example, if a criminal wants to cash out, they want to convert their illegally obtained crypto funds, um, to, and they want to convert them to U.S. dollars, they would more, more likely than not have to go through some major source of liquidity, which are largely le- regulated. These platforms are centralized, largely regulated, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, and so on and they can actually make it very hard, um, and they can act as choke points for criminals trying to convert between crypto and fiat. And the other thing is that these platforms can also help link uh, the pseudonymous blockchain addresses to real world identities, because they're actually cryptocurrency exchanges are generally subject to KYC and and anti-money laundering requirements.
1: Okay. That's interesting. So, Ritu, I want to get to you because I want to talk about that little 2% slice that you've got in some of the portfolios, the all-in-one portfolios. Investors, I think, would be happier if the uh, space was regulated or there was more transparency. Uh, do you see regulation coming? And then how much transparency is there in the Fidelity product?
4: So I think regulation is coming. In fact, um, after with the sequence of events that have happened um, this year in crypto, starting off with uh, Terra Luna, um, you know, we, we have there has been comments um, suggesting that regulation is coming. In fact, it was supposed to come by year end, which didn't seem very likely, seemed so very aggressive. Um, and so I think that there is going to be regulation on stablecoin. There's going to be more regulation on centralized exchanges especially after uh, what we've seen with FTX. And I think ultimately the overarching issues that are trying to be dealt with are the fact that consumers need to be protected um, while uh, while while there's financial innovation happening. And so absolutely I, there's going to be innovation, uh, so there's going to be regulation, and I think it's almost needed because um, in order to gain confidence in the crypto ecosystem and the asset class for uh, for a good number of investors, there needs to be more regulation so that these blowups don't happen. And so, um, so I, I think it's it's happened, it's going to happen, and I think it's important for it to happen.
1: Um, I mean, very interesting discussion, but I want to get back to the overall spectrum of ETF products that Fidelity offers. If we could throw back up that chart again, uh, talk to me where you see the greatest opportunity, Vivian, in terms of all these products. I mean, obviously, Bitcoin on the digital assets on the right-hand side, but where else should people really focus their ETF efforts?
2: I think uh, we talked about the pair trade idea, right, value and quality. We talked about fixed income. Um, We are seeing... Uh, clients who are looking to lower the overall cost of their uh, book of business, looking at strategies like on-ones that have uh, been able to show out performance um, and with a lower fee ticket attached to it. Um, It is year-end, so we are uh, the ETF strategists that we have on the team are talking to advisors about strategies, uh, you know, switching from passive strategies to Fidelity ones that you know, where you could crystallize your loss and also look to outperform um, in the future. And I think overall the the support sort of the one key takeaway, I would say the support that you've all enjoy from uh, Fidelity stays the same with the ETF business. So ETF strategies, we've got um, ETF capital markets that can help execute uh, trades uh, for more efficiency and we've got uh, Cam. So everyone has been, you know, out there on, on day one talking to Cam about Fidelity Portfolio Intelligence Tool that can help diagnose and uh, stress test your portfolio. Uh, we've got the biggest sales team. Dave always liked to, to say that, too. Uh, great, uh, biggest sales team, great back office. Um, and overall, what I would say is, um, and of course, like digital asset strategists and retweets or the supporting, you know, crypto knowledge, I think. After today, everyone understands that there's more that we all need to learn. One in five Canadians uh, have held or currently holds crypto. And so there's just more education for better transparency and awareness in this area. Um, And then just there's no one-size-fits-all when it comes to investing. So really, like I, I would say like talk to your sales teams, um, get yourselves in front of all the supports and, and resources that Fidelity can offer.
1: Vivian, Megan, Ritu, thank you ever so much for your time this morning.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.